0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. As we end the year 2021, I'm sharing some very special episodes with you, as I want to do at the end of each year. And that entails bringing on some very special guests to join me in talking about true crime cases. This year, as I was planning these episodes, I noticed a similarity in the cases I chose. They are all high-profile cases where the perpetrator, or person suspected of being the perpetrator, becomes famous, or infamous if you will. Much has been said, written, and aired about these cases, with the standard narrative applied to each, including what happened, how it happened, and the motivation behind each crime. But you who are regular listeners of Once Upon a Crime know that I try and dig a little deeper to tell the story behind the story of true crime cases. In each of the cases I'll be covering this month, there are details I felt had not been revealed or at least questions that I still wanted answered. So to help me do that, I've chosen guests who, like me, really wanted to dig into the details and discover the real story of these well-known true crime cases. The first case I'll be covering this month is that of infamous serial killer Edmund Kemper III. Most, I think, might know him as the co-ed killer, but if for some reason you're not familiar with this case, I'll just give you a brief summary.
2: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Edmund Emil Kemper III was born on December 18th, 1948. Side note, why are so many serial killers Sagittarius? As a Saggie myself, this is very offensive to me. He was born in Burbank, California, to Clarnell Stage Kemper and Edmund Emil Kemper Jr. Edmund was the middle child of the family. He had an older sister, Susan, and a younger sister, Alan. His parents divorced when he was about eight years old, and his father remarried and had little contact with his children after that. Clarnell raised the three children in Montana, while their father lived in Southern California. At the age of 14, Kemper ran away wanting to live with his father. He was only there a short time before his father took him to the town of North Fork where his parents lived on a ranch. North Fork is a rural town located in between California's Central Valley and Yosemite National Park. His father decided Edmund couldn't live with him and his new family because he made his wife, quote, nervous. Telling Edmund they were going to visit his grandparents over Christmas, he instead left him there. Edmund's grandparents, Maude and Edmund Sr., took charge of the team. The following summer, on August 27, 1964, 15-year-old Ed Kemper took a shotgun and shot his grandmother in the back of the head, killing her. When his grandfather returned home from an errand, Kemper shot and killed him as well. He then called his mother and told her what he'd done. She called police, and Kemper was arrested and remanded to the California Youth Authority. He would remain incarcerated until the age of 21, when he was released to the custody of his mother who was now living in California, near Santa Cruz. Within three years, he began killing random women he encountered driving around Northern California. Between May 1972 and February 1973, Kemper murdered six girls and women. In April of 1973, he murdered his mother and her friend. He then fled to Colorado, but called the Santa Cruz Police Department from that state, confessed, and turned himself in. He was tried and sentenced to life in prison, and he is still incarcerated in a prison medical facility in Vacaville, California. Kemper is often described by his height. He stands 6 foot 9 inches tall. And his intelligence. It's said he has tested in the genius range. He was one of the first serial killers interviewed by Robert Ressler and John Douglas of the FBI for their initial research into these types of killers. This was because of his willingness to talk about his murders, including details of beheading and dismembering his victims necrophilia, and allegedly also cannibalism of the corpses. He is one of the most infamous serial killers in American history, and many stories, real and imagined, have been told about him over the decades since he committed his crimes. I'll be talking with my first guest to try and separate fact from fiction, and maybe do some myth-busting about this serial killer. So I'll introduce you to my special guest, and we'll get right into the details. First up, I'm so pleased to introduce Emerson Murray, author of a new book titled Murder Capital of the World. Emerson's book, in my opinion, is the definitive research guide, if you will, of a series of murders that took place in the early 1970s in the area of Santa Cruz, California. It would be revealed in time that not one but three serial killers, although the term was not yet in use at that time, would be active in and around that seaside town, which before then was mostly known for attracting surfers and families visiting the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, not for serial murder. But that would change, and Santa Cruz for a time would be referred to as, like the title of your book, Emerson, the murder capital of the world. Welcome to the show, and I've really been looking forward to this discussion. So um, welcome. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me, Esther.
1: When you know I first learned about you and your book and the work on it, I had a lot of questions. I've had a lot of questions in my mind, um, specifically about, and we'll we'll get into you know some of the others that you write about in the book, but about Ed Kemper, because I think he was probably one of the first ones that I knew of besides Ted Bundy. He's maybe was the second who I knew of like in the eighties was being referred to as a serial killer. And especially since I'm in California, I'm here in the Bay area. And this of course happened right up the road from, from me in San Jose. So it was something that I knew something about, but not much, So I really did kind of dive in and try to get the information of the story. And at first, it's kind of like at the first reading, I guess, if you will, of, of Ed Kemper. It's like, whoa, this is crazy. And you get all these details and stuff like that. But because I am one of these true crime buffs who reads everything and watches everything. And if there's a case I'm really interested in, I see something and I will consume that as well. And over time, I realized I'm hearing the same things over and over and over. And a lot of questions that I still have, I have not heard anybody speak about or I've not heard anybody answer them. Mm. So that's why I was really interested to meet you and find out about your book.
0: Yeah, it's the same bullet points you hear over and over and over about it, Kemper. All the nuances have been flattened and it's just turned into um almost pure mythology and just these uh, a series of bullet points. This happened, this happened, this happened, you know, his mom was a hundred percent pure evil. He's almost turned into a caricature. You know, he's not a real person anymore. I found that a lot, especially when I started digging into the research, of course, with the Mindhunter TV show, uh, he's sort of, um, I guess popularity is a weird word, but people know who he is now at this time and are interested in, in him and his crimes. So when I started, started, diving in, was kind of aware of that, but not so much. I mean, for us, you know, we always knew about Ed Kemper and in our family in particular, you know, Herbert Mullen was, was somebody that we knew more about, you know, he went to San Lorenzo Valley High School, the same high school I did. And he had, he killed 13 people trying to stop earthquakes was his idea in his head. And, and one of the people he killed was one of my dad's friends. And so we, I just always knew about Herbert Mullen. But right along with that was Ed Kemper. I remember I first heard the name Ed Kemper when I was at my my friend Steve's house, I think in third grade at the dinner table, his family would talk about it. But in Santa Cruz County, I think, right, uh, in Santa Cruz County, I think. It's just impacted so many people, and everybody's got a connection to it. Everybody knows Edmund Kemper around here, so right, yeah.
1: So yeah, so I wanted to, to, to first of all ask you. Well, you kind of answered a little bit of it of why you were so interested mm-hmm. in this in this topic, um, and why you wrote the book. But and we uh-huh. can go into give a quick summary about the three that you do talk about in you know extensively okay. in the book. But I'm really interested too, just to know like when did you think about writing this book what was Mm -hmm. the idea behind it and yeah i mean for god's sakes how long did it take you to put it together because i'm telling telling you guys um you have to like see this book it's it's amazing it's 500 plus pages it's got like everything i mean it's like like i said it's like it's like a desk reference manual of everything Mm. but it's put in order you know it's put in in an order that you can read through it like like a book but with so much detail and you know documents and transcripts and um you know but interviews and and the trials yeah. and all of 300
0: do- 300 pictures yeah okay, yeah pictures,
1: pictures yeah. really pictures that some that i've never seen you know probably maybe a yeah. lot of people yeah. haven't yeah. ever seen so yeah so tell me a little bit about how you came to put the book together and like you know, just the process of that
0: so to be honest, I, in some ways I, I never felt like I had a choice. I had, I had done a previous book uh, called Bruiser Brody about a professional wrestler who was murdered down in Puerto Rico. He was sort of an outlaw wrestler. That's what they call him. And, um, in that book, I had discovered this style of writing or, or editing even where you tell the story through quotes. And I had seen it, uh, originally in a book about the filmmaker, Ed Wood by Rudolph gray. And I thought, wow, what an amazing way to tell a story about, especially about a person that's sort of controversial, like Edward was and like Bruce Aberti was where you hear these multiple angles. So you'll hear the same story maybe three times, but it's slightly different each time from however this, Oh, this was Ed Wood's sister. Well, she's not going to say anything negative, negative about him, or this is his best friend. He's going to, Oh, this is the guy that hated him. So you get a very well-rounded picture of, of a person or an event by by doing it that way, some people sort of find it discombobulating, but that was the style that that I wanted. And um, in terms of the why, well, I like I said, I, I never felt like I had a choice. It was just these stories that were just around me all the time. I can remember my parents being at parties with their friends talking about these crimes, and like I said, my friend Steve, you know, his family would talk about it at dinner all the time, talk about these horrible, <laughs> these horrible crimes. So it was just always they're sort of in the background. And in the early 2000s, the BBC came to Santa Cruz um, and did a series of documentaries for a series they were working on called Born to Kill. And you, I think you can find them probably on YouTube. And they came and, and my sister-in-law at the time, April, was she was working in the sheriff's office. Uh, she's a deputy working in their public relations department. And so she was sort of the liaison. So I got to talk to April and get sort of the background of what they were looking at and everything. So I was very excited. Somebody's doing this project finally that I've been thinking about my whole life. And um, unfortunately when the series came out, it was three separate episodes, one on Fraser, one on Mullen, one on Kemper, and I'll talk about them in a second. But they didn't really cross over and they didn't talk about the impact on Santa Cruz. And they didn't talk about how insane it was that these Two of them were killing at the same time. It was just missed. It was just three separate episodes. So I thought, God, what a missed opportunity. And then in 2019, uh, my wife and I went and saw Mickey Alufi, who was the detective on uh, The Kemper Case, went and saw Mickey speak. And Mickey was very sharp, re- very together, man. He had his stories down. He was great. And uh, he's just such a sharp guy. But as I looked around in the audience, I thought, if I'm going to do a project, especially one that's a first person you know, getting quotes, I'm going to be in trouble in a few years. Everyone around me is 80 and 90 years old and the memories are fading and some of them are, have passed away and, and will be passing away. You know, obviously we all pass away, but, um, so it was literally the the next Monday that I was sitting in, in my office at work and I thought, Oh, i gotta start writing you know i got the formula you know i know i want to do quotes i I have the impetus now like i'm in a hurry i'm in a race against time and so i just jumped in and and started gathering quotes and interviews and with kemper of course you just go on youtube and once he starts talking you can't get him to stop talking so (laughs) there's a, a bunch of interviews on there with him and he's very candid about his crimes uh you know the the term serial killer comes I think from the FBI and John Douglas that the Mindhunter TV show was, was about. And and Kemper was the first person they went and talked to because they knew that he talked and he talked and he talked about his crimes and what he was doing, how he was feeling, but right before his crimes, right after his crimes. So that's sort of the why. The other thing is that there's so many, like you mentioned, there's so many books and projects out there that just hit these same bullet points over and over and over. And, And it was like, we need to dig a little deeper. I know that we can do better. You know, I know that Wikipedia and Google are easy, but we got to start talking to the people that were actually there and, and getting that kind of information. That's sort of the why.
2: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs
0: John Lindley Frazier, he was actually a mass murderer, and he killed, um, in Santa Cruz, we had a family named the Oda family. And Dr. Oda was a very prominent eye surgeon. Uh, his wife was very involved in the community. So John Lindley Frazier was, he fashioned himself as sort of an eco-terrorist. He, I think, without a doubt, had some mental health issues. And he he murdered uh, four members of the Oda family and Dorothy Codwallader, who was Dr. Oda's uh, secretary. And this happened on the heels of the Manson murderers and on the heels of the Zodiac crimes. And so this was a massive, this got press all over the world, gun sales through the roof. This division between sort of straights and hippies just, you know, was put to the test, a stress test.
1: And California and then, came out in a really good light, right? California. <laughs> all this is right, Cal right. Manson <laughs> and Zodiac exactly. and all of these like, oh, Lord. It's like,
0: <laughs> what is going on out in California? Is it gone everyone gone mad? So and, and shortly on the heels of that, um, Herbert Mullen uh started murdering people. He was a local boy. He uh, like I said, went to the same high school I did and, and and grew up in this this area. He started experimenting with drugs and he had some tragedy in his life. His best friend was killed in an accident. And so he started killing he because he believed that by human sacrifice he could prevent natural disasters such as an earthquake that would that would break California off into the ocean. So he he started killing men, women, children. He killed a priest in his own church. As a kid, I used to think of him as Michael Myers in, in the Halloween movies. Just, yeah. you know, this just this insane killing machine. And then along with Herbert Mullen and very roughly the same time, Edmund Kemper started uh, murdering coeds. He had murdered his grandparents when he was 15 and went away to a Tascadero in the CYA, California Youth Authority. And then he was released to his, the custody of his mother against everyone's better judgment. And he started picking up hitchhikers. He practiced on hundreds of hitchhikers where he would just pick them up and try to get them comfortable, but drop them off with no harm done. And I always think of him as like a, as a hunter, you know, he was perfecting what he had this ultimate game plan for he had his special glasses that made him look uh, less threatening and his murder clothes that were dark if he got blood on him and his car that he had rigged up where he could drop a chapstick in the door handle and his victim couldn't get out you know he just had thought through all all of that stuff and even the way he dismembered um, the bo- the victims after they were dead so that um, identification would be very hard. Yeah. So he started uh, murdering. And then ultimately, uh, I think as most of your listeners probably know, he ended up killing his mother and, and her friend. And then he fled to Pueblo, Colorado and and ultimately turned himself in.
1: And like I said, we're going to be focusing on Kemper just because, you know, brevity of time, because there's so much we could go into. But the fact that all of three of these killers were basically on the loose in this you know, not a very big area at the time Mm -hmm. and all at the same time, it's so interesting. And I think probably unprecedented that, you know, as far as we know, did you, in doing this research, did you come up with any theories of why and how this happened?
0: Yeah. And I don't, there's no like a silver bullet kind of theory in the book. I presented several different, like, Hey, this was going on at that time. And I, I think because each of the killers were so different, I think that um, each sort of had different mitigating factors, but there were a couple of threads in common, you know, and that is, you know, one, the mental health system in California was being defunded by Governor Reagan. Ronald Reagan was our governor at the time, and he he really defunded the mental health system. All three of them had contact with the mental health system uh, in California. You know, you can, we can talk about the age gap, like the generation gap and the Vietnam War and the protests and sort of. Um, people breaking out into that hippie lifestyle, especially especially in Santa Cruz, and drugs being more, street drugs being more readily available. Um, there were all of these sort of factors. Another thing Peter Chang said, he was the district attorney at the time, and Peter Chang had a quote, and it's not 100% accurate, but he said Santa Cruz is like no other place in that you can be downtown surrounded by people in a downtown area, and within three to five minutes, you can be in the middle of a forest with no one around, that, that would hear a thing. And that sort of makes Santa Cruz uh, an ideal area for this kind of thing. Additionally, law enforcement, like retired law enforcement folks told me that Santa Cruz was always known as a dumping ground for bodies from crimes that happened all over the Bay Area. And then, of course, Kemper, he said, well, you know, with all those beautiful co-eds up at UCSC, UC Santa Cruz at the university. So it's just you know, the set of circumstances, but I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think anyone that tells you, oh, there's this one reason why I I don't think that that's accurate. I I think the answer is extremely nuanced and And that's another thing, you know, people try to hammer it down and give you easy answers. There's no easy answers for something like this.
1: You're right. It could be a combination of certain things. There was a lot of hitchhiking going on, especially in California. The weather was always good. So people were outside more, you know, walking and hiking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just did not long ago uh, a series about the Trailside Killer Um, you know, and that was, that was another one that people talk about because, you know, people were outside and people weren't afraid then as, as they are now or or as wary maybe. Um, yeah. And I think these cracks
0: had something to do with with that.
1: Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, and Santa Cruz, even today though, I mean, it's still a pretty free town, you know, like you see a lot of people outside, you see people, you know, walking, hiking, running through the (laughs) forests, like.
3: Yeah. You
1: yeah. Know? Yeah. And uh it, it it is. I mean it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful place and you could be at the beach, you could be like you said in the woods. And yeah, there's a lot of very remote forested areas in between. So it yeah. makes sense. It's kind of like I are pine barrens, you know, in in New Jersey or something where you're you're oh, I guess every place has their their dumping grounds, right? Everglades maybe in in yeah. Florida or whatever, but this is one of ours. If I could pick out a few things that I think made Kemper seem to be like this real boogeyman that everybody was so you know fascinated by, and he became, number one, like you said, is he talked a lot. So they got a lot of information from him, which you don't normally get from these killers. Even when they get caught, they'll still deny, they have nothing to say. Like Bundy, when they do talk about maybe some of the victims, they don't talk about all of them. They mm-hmm. won't give up the bodies, you know, things like that. And he was just, I mean, from A to Z, what do you want to know? Like, and and he really mm-hmm. did just yap away all the time. That was one thing. The other thing was his, like you said, his backstory of when he was a kid. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about his upbringing and how it led to that first killing when he was just a teenager?
0: So Kemper, his his parents split when he was young. I I, I believe he was like seven or eight years old, um, and his mother moved him up to Montana with uh, his two sisters. He had an older sister and a younger sister. Even from the outset, he he had issues. He really worshipped his father, and this is according to his sisters who I who I heard interviews with, and, and others like his friend that he grew up with. He um, really worshipped his father, and his father was not interested in taking him. His father went off and had another family in Southern California, got remarried, had a stepson, and just went on to a different life. Kemper never fully accepted that. He just couldn't accept that his father would do that to him or that 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 had happened. Uh, At the same time, he had uh, an awful resentment towards his mother. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, people want to paint her as this horrible person, and, and maybe she was horrible in some ways. But you have to keep in mind that she would wake up at night with with this boy with a hammer standing over her, her eight-year-old son stand, with a hammer standing over her. He was also doing other things. You always hear the things, oh, playing electrocution and cutting off the dolls and all that stuff. And people sort of separate those stories as if, oh, Kemper did this, ha ha, how interesting, it's, it's going to lead to this thing or whatever. And then, oh, Clarnell put him in the basement. So, you know, the famous story that That there was one of the houses that they lived in uh, had this basement that she had moved him into as a bedroom because she didn't want him sharing a room with his sister, and you know it was uh, the light was across the room and he had to walk through the darkness and the only the furnace he would watch the fire and all that stuff. Well, you got to remember we get most of these stories from Kemper. We don't get them from other people, and Kemper is highly manipulative um, by his own accounts, and he's going to spin the story to to suit the story that he wants. be told and i have no doubt it was not nice it was not good and that she wasn't a great mother but i just think it it gets exaggerated and she gets so demonized like like i said before like she's like a caricature she's not even a human being anymore she's just this demon woman but i mean kemper said that he was sneaking out of the house in the middle of the night with a bayonet to go kill his school teacher his sister school teacher and was hiding in her closet and all this stuff you know what which of those stories are real which aren't i mean whether they happened or not he was still talking about having done this as a small child so or I wouldn't say small as a young child ultimately um, he runs away from home he has a lot of issues which we can get into uh, later with bullies there was a neighbor named Lee that accused him of killing his dog and Kemper was at school this is before he killed the cats or anything Lee and his friends were just bullying Kemper and Kemper's sister talks about them chasing them and going to a movie theater and Lee's friends were breaking Kemper's glasses and Kemper never stood up for himself or or any of that. He was um always on the defense and always running away. He, he his sister even joked one time as she got caught by the bullies. I think it was a different set of bullies and, and ended up getting thrashed. And her brother was nowhere to be seen. He took off. So that all happened. And eventually he wanted to go to his dad's. And I think he had gone and visited and, and come home once or twice. I can't remember the exact number. And eventually he, he stole his mother's car and went and ran away to his father's house. So he gets to Southern California and he he sneaks onto the doorstep and hears his father and he's on the phone with the mother and he's saying uh, all, all this stuff. And he thinks that, his dad doesn't want him. So he runs away and he's crying. He calls his mother and his mother calls the dad and his stepbrother comes and picks him up, and brings him home. And the dad says, no, you're going to stay here with me now. We're going to live with me and everything's going to be great. Well, it's not, it's not great. Christmas comes around and Kemper's father takes him and says, we're going to your grandparents' and, uh, his parents' house in North Fork, California. Very remote, very rural. And moves him out there and then says, oh, by the way, you're staying here and leaves and leaves Kemper there. So Kemper's very unhappy. His grandmother reminds him a lot of his, his mother, even though she's the other side of the family, uh, very overbearing, very strong-willed, all, all that stuff. So the grandfather buys him a 22 rifle and he's shooting at birds and squirrels and all that. And he said he killed everything that came through the property. He said it got so bad the birds were would fly towards the property and fly around it, which I thought was sort of a funny story. but. Eventually, things come to a head and he ends up killing his grandmother. His grandfather was away at the store and he comes home and he did not want his grandfather to see what he had done. He's 15 years old, so he shoots his his grandfather as well and kills him. So Kemper um, is then sent away to Atascadero Hospital. It's a rough place. You know, it's all adults there. He's only 15. But, you know, but he was already uh, pretty big
1: at that. He was a bigger kid, though.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. He was adult size. Yeah. And he talks a lot about, you know, if the place is full of rapists and he learned there that, you know, if you're going to do some kind of crime like that, you need to kill your victim. You can't let him live. So that's where I think he started to really get sort of those ideas, you know, and I sort of skipped over the killing of the cats. He killed two family cats and all that. Yeah. So then he's in a Tascadero for several years until he's 21. And uh, I have the records from a you know, I mean, every pill he took, every session he was in, every single day, every log. And it was mostly uneventful. He hurt his knee a couple of times and, you know, they went back and forth with group. And he was a typical teenage boy, you know, they, at group, he either is quiet or he tries to take over and is real boisterous. So, okay, that, that's typical. But one thing that happened when he was there is his father did come and visit him. And his father unfortunately told him, look, pretend like I died in the war and I'm not your dad and just forget about me and forget I ever existed. And leaves him with that and leaves. So, I mean, how soul crushing, right? You know, this person that you idolize telling you something like that. So Kemper's mother and his sister's his younger sister, visited him every other week I have records of that, but his older sister had a family. And then eventually, as we started and when he turns 21, he is, he's released to his mother in Santa Cruz. She had moved to Santa Cruz because they were talking about moving him to Montana. Even though the crime was committed in California, his mother was in Montana and they talked about moving to Montana and she she didn't want that to happen. I guess it's like a hellhole or something there in that facility they wanted to move him to. So she came to California and moved into Aptos and I think she was in Capitola first.
1: So, you know, that whole story you just told, I think you highlighted some really good information there because... That is the thing that you hear. That is the talking points that you hear about Kemper is that his mother was this horrible person and it's almost like she brought it upon herself what he did because she, you know, was so horrible to him and abusive and, you know, either psychologically or physically or both. You hear all these stories about that or really vague because you don't really get details because people don't know the details. They just kind of assume what he's saying, like you said, is the truth without Really knowing what that truth is, but here's the here's the things that I pulled out, and and that's the reason why I went through through your book, um, and all the all of these details because these were the questions that I had. My thing, my background is in psychology. I have a degree in correctional psychology. So when people are incarcerated, or have done you know these things or whatever, and see psychologists, psychiatrists, that's the part that I want to pick apart and say, okay, so let's get down to what happened here. You know, like, why did they react the way they did? Why did this happen? What I see even with, like you say, some things that you see on TV or our books or things like that about these crimes is they're not interested in that. They're interested in the details of the crime, uh-huh. especially Kempers, because they are so horrendous. They are so uh-huh. gruesome and they are so, you know, just out there that people get really caught up in that. And they don't look at all at what I think is. More interesting is why, you know, what happened Uh here? So one of my first questions, you know, again, coming from that psychology background is, and I dealt a lot with family dynamics and, and I worked with juveniles. So with people that were juveniles who ended up incarcerated for you know, anything from murder to car theft to whatever. I always want to see what's happened in the family. You know, what are those relationships like? Who are these people? How did they parent? How did they, you know, were they neglectful? Were they abusive? Were they um, overprotective? Were they, you know, all of these things. And my first question about Clarnell and his family was, I guess the, the first idea I thought is like, okay, obviously they split up, like you said, when he was like eight years old, he stays with his mother, his father takes off. Starts his other life, yep. has nothing to do with him, basically. You know, I mean, they, there was a couple of visits here and there, but there wasn't nothing consistent. Obviously, mm-hmm. everybody knew this because that's all he talked about was how great his dad was, that his dad was his yep. hero. His dad was this great whatever. Where he got that information was really all in his own fantasy because it also sounded like even when his dad was there, his dad was not even his sister say that he was not involved with the kids. His exactly. sister said yeah, something sister about, about yeah, some his sister stuff. said something about like, you know, I don't think he never wanted to have kids, like he wasn't interested. yeah, he wasn't yeah. there. and so mom was doing all the parenting, yeah. so you have some things, and this was really interesting to me that you have some I, maybe I was it from a Tescadero. It must have been right after he killed his grandparents because things that clarnell has said i don't know if they're written or they were like a, a yeah. interview or something
0: yeah that's an interesting document so it's a document when he was after he had been arrested and he was in seaway for a short time while they were figuring out the trial and while they were figuring out what to do with him when he was admitted into the she wrote this document this handwritten document uh, about her son and she, and that's where the quotes from her come from yeah it talks about Her family history, his father's family history, and uh, she talks there about having to be a mother and a father at the same time, you know. And she had some biases. Uh, Her her sister had a son that was gay, and she blamed the coddling. She said that her sister was coddling the boy all the time, and that he turned out gay. So she was adamant that she was not going to do that. She was going to be stern. I think she was stern anyway. She had um, sort of a mean mean sort of sense of humor and was very critical of things and, and questioning of things and... Just, um, she was a tough woman, no doubt. Yeah. So that's where that document comes from. That comes from when he was admitted into a Tascadero. And it, it's sort of fascinating to get her insight. Obviously, it's her baby boy, but.
3: Yeah. And, you know, and
1: still, that's, she, that's what I government, you know, in some areas. She did talk about the because, you know, she was saying he's being raised with just his mother, not a father, and two sisters. You know, who yep. took care of him. And that's a lot of nurturing and a lot of mothering and a lot of female energy, I guess. And uh-huh. so she thought because his dad basically, you know, bugged out, I have to be even more stern because I have to give that male energy so he's exactly. not, doesn't become like a little weenie. Or whatever, right? Yeah. And
0: or become gay. That's a, yeah she was afraid of, like like her nephew.
3: Yeah. 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 Interesting.
1: So that, yeah. that was yeah. That's so exactly. that was interesting. So she she did say that. Um, she was very clear about that. That was part of the strategy of how she was with mm-hmm. him. You know, because she thought that would just be, you know, something that would be terrible because of course the times and whatever, and maybe her own biases about, you know, mm-hmm. homosexuals or whatever. That's just how, you know, she thought. But the other thing too is that you see is that she obviously is very close to her son. She knows, like, everything about him, even his secrets. I mean, up to a point yeah. when he was younger. The other thing I noticed, too, is that she really doesn't like the ex-husband, the his father. Yeah, yeah. Because she yeah. just
3: calls, oh, him, the, so biased,
1: she calls yeah, him the please, father. Yes, so. She never writes his name. Do you notice that?
0: Right, right. Because
1: right. <laughs> yeah, at first exactly. I was reading the first couple of uh, paragraphs. I'm like, who is, she, who is this talking?
0: It's funny because... I- <laughs> Yeah, I thought she was talking about, because they have the same name, you know, Edmund Kemper III, but as a, you know, interested in psychology and studying it, yeah, you may be onto something that, yeah, that she's, that's interesting. Yeah, Yeah. that was, I just calls him the father. The father. She
1: never says his name. She calls him the father. Mm -hmm. And even, I think, I think the daughters I noticed did it once or twice, too, said that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was a couple of reasons why she did that. One is because she really didn't like him. And two, because it was like, he's distant. From us. He is not, I'm not gonna call him his father or his dad. He's
0: not of this unit. We are a unit. We're a family. And he is elsewhere not involved. Yeah, I think I think you're you're definitely onto something there Mm -hmm. for sure. And like you said, she's very insightful, knows the secrets, doesn't miss a thing. And so it's interesting when Kemper says since I was eight years old, I would stand over my mother while she's sleeping with a hammer. I remember when my kids were born, I developed this daddy radar where a kid could cough across the hallway and I'd be wide awake. You know, what mother is not awake? Yeah, I mean, unless she's drinking, but is not awake when this eight-year-old standing over her with a hammer. Give me a break. And so, you know, I I know that she, she knew that those things about him, that he was troubled in a lot of ways, without a doubt. Another thing that, that we I didn't really hit on was that she had gone through a series of husbands after that mm-hmm. because she was pretty tough.
1: I didn't know that. I didn't these, know that.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. she got these kind of wimpy husbands, these wimpy series of husbands. And I'm sure that impacted him. You know, he's comparing these guys to this image he has of his father and the, this hero and this wonderful man. And so I know that he, at least he said he didn't respect any of those men, Yeah, uh, that they just let her run all over him.
1: The, the big picture of it is even his sisters say it was, it was not an easy time for my mom. You know, she had to work and take care of yeah. all three of us and, and she was raising them and she said, it wasn't easy. You know, we didn't have a lot. She had to work really hard, but she was there. You know, she didn't like abandon yeah. him. She always made sure they had what they needed. And yet he idealized his father and hates his mother. And, you know, that is pretty typical of kids who have been abandoned by one parent is they do that because i've worked with people you know parents that this has been you know an issue and they're like man you know it's like i can't do anything right by my kid they just they're always argue with me i'm this terrible person you know whatever i said okay well think about that though because you're there they know in you know in their being in their gut that you are the solid parent that is not going to leave them so you are the safe one to dump on
3: right
1: because yeah. if he was to say something to his father like you son of a bitch you abandoned me his father would be gone and he'd never see him again or hear yeah. from him again and he knows and i said
3: sense. so yeah. it
1: sucks that that is what happens to you but know that that means that they really in their gut know that you are the stable parent that's not going to leave them You know, and so that's what I saw with him because because here's a couple of clues to me, too, about what he did. He killed his father's parents. He didn't kill his mother's parents or his mother or his sister, even though he said he wanted to. He killed his father's parents, you know. And when I realized that, I thought, okay, why aren't people getting this? You know, the person (laughs) he really hates is his father. And of course, for yeah. very good reason, he abandoned him multiple times and in a very cruel ways, like you said, you know, dumping yeah. him off. The the whole scene where he steals his mom car and he goes out to California because the mother had called because she knew that he was, that's where he was going to go. She, she,
0: yeah, she knew where he was going. She yeah. knew where
1: he was going. And so she calls, probably the last person on earth she wanted to talk to. She calls yeah. him, his father, and says, hey, he's on his way there. You know, let me know what's going on. And apparently he was either talking to her or somebody else about it because he knew he was coming. And that's what, what Edmund heard when he got there. His father was basically... saying look and i think ed's but other people said it too that that his father's wife so his his stepmom was not comfortable with him as with him around quote unquote yeah Yeah.
0: kemper kemper himself has said that yeah that he would he didn't know how to react to her so he'd end up staring at her and and she was very pretty like a model type and you know okay. the southern california and the, the stepbrother was um you know like a bodybuilder type very good looking so but the, he has said as much and and everybody has said she she felt really uncomfortable with him i am i imagine she was just from what i've heard also high strong as you know as well and to have this teenager that's like hey you have my dad and I don't have my dad you know he's just
1: and he's you know and and there's there's some things too about his personality that I think don't come up enough is and and again I learned these details from your book and things I hadn't heard before is that he did not socialize at all with other children he did Mm. not play with other kids he did not Mm. want to he basically stayed home he was very self-conscious about everything from I mean from very young age he didn't feel like he fit in. He already had this idea about himself that he was not as good as these other kids.
0: Yeah, he was different. Yeah, yeah, he he
1: was more awkward. He was more whatever. But he switches that and makes it about later on, you'll see, it becomes this narcissistic tendency where he's better than everyone. So he can't relate to you. Right. You know? Um, right,
0: right, right. But at the time... And you have to do that, right? For your survival, your right. own mental survival. You have... You have to flip that script somehow. But that's def- that's right. When he was younger, his sisters talked about that, how sort of wimpy he was and and picked on and no friends. And and even the gentleman I talked to when he moved to North Fork and he was in high school said the first time we met him, we're playing basketball. And he picked up my brother really strangely. And my brother said, God, that guy is weird. And, and his response, well, we're all weird around here, you know, North North Fork. Yeah, it was just sort of known. And then you see the interior rage come out against the cats. It doesn't come out against his bullies. It doesn't come out against other people. He takes it out on the cats, but essentially helpless exactly. creatures, you know, so.
1: because it, yeah. it has to be something that he doesn't feel threatened by because, I mean, he right. was the biggest kid in town and he was afraid of everybody. He was afraid yes. of everybody. I mean, these bullies were not bigger than him. You know, and he, he yeah. always, I mean, he was 15. How, how tall was he at that point? Oh.
0: He was a bit, right. He's over six feet tall. And, and the, the other story I was relating earlier, where he ran away when his, he and his sister were attacked. It was a, a group of, she said it, not me, of Native American girls in, in Montana, and they were after them and he wouldn't stand up and he ran away. So, you know, the way I think of it, Esther, is that when you look at his booking photo and you look at the straight on picture of him and, and then there's a profile picture. You look at the straight on and he looks like a handsome, he's got the glasses, you know, so in that time, there's sort of a stereotype of, of being smart and he looks relatively handsome, you know, together. And then you look at that profile picture and he looks like a completely different person. He looks like a sort of a victim of somebody that was picked on, you know, and for me, I always think, you know, there's a lot of Kemper fans or people that are really interested. And I just saw somebody made a t-shirt on one of the Facebook boards that I go to. And I always think they're they're looking at that straight ahead picture, mm-hmm. but they really need to look at that profile picture. And that's the whole, what we're talk, sort of talking about today is that profile picture. Right. And for me, that photo, that those two photos just sort of say it all about Edmund Kemper, which I always think is funny, you know, even when he was housed in Redwood City um, after he was arrested. Uh, he was housed next to Mullen, and he has a whole story about manipulating Herbert Mullen with peanuts and splashing water on him. And Mullen, who I've written back and forth with several times, said, oh, I don't remember that th- that story. Whoever told you that is is lying to try to get attention or something. And I thought, oh, that's sort of fun. I mean, Mullen was, of course, out of it. So the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. That is a major accomplishment for him and it's a story that everybody repeats over and over and it's like what is you splashed water and gave peanuts to try to manipulate somebody to stop singing like this guy that had these mental health problems like what is
1: i mean that's how does that make you a tough guy
0: (laughs) yeah it's a nothing story and he has talked about his fragile bones and things like that and and I always thought it was funny because Mullen was a, was a boxer. He's an amateur boxer, and he was a short guy. But or is a short guy. He's still alive. But he was a boxer. Like he was a fighter. He knew how to fight. I just thought it was it would be interesting. You know, the perception of either of them in a in a real
3: context. Of,
1: well, that's the you thing. Know. You know, it, it seems like even in the Mindhunter series, like he's this big uh-huh. kind of. Almost scary, menacing guy, even though he's got this baby face and he comes across as trying to be very charming and stuff. But in that one scene where you see uh, the guy that's the John Douglas type character talking to him, at some point he gets this, you can tell that his face switches and he's like, shit, I'm alone with this guy. This guy's a monster. He can kill yeah. me, you know, that kind of thing. And yet, like you said, when you really see him in context of his real life and the things that he did and the things he didn't do, You realize that he's scared of everything. You know, he was Uh afraid of everything. And this was, you know, one of the reasons why he was so careful when he was planning his crimes, because he did not want to get caught because he thought, I'm going to get killed. Like the the police are going to just kill me, you know, and that was, that was the thing. So he was always hiding everything. Um, Of course, you don't want to hide that if you want to continue doing it as well. You know, that's the serial killer mentality. But yeah, but he was afraid of the bullies in school. He was afraid of his mother. He was afraid of confronting his father. He was afraid of just about everything. And even though, you know, despite the size, because he was what, six foot nine as an adulthood? Yeah,
3: six nine. Six
1: nine, you know, big dude. And he used to hang out with cops, but they Kind of thought he was, some thought he was a nice guy. Some thought he was a weirdo, you know, like there was kind of half the half or just annoying. That was the other thing I was going to say. He was so annoying. So annoying. You know, and it's like everything I read about him, it's like, again, reading through the lines and reading his, I'm sorry, but there was times in the, when he's going off on his whole confession thing that I'm like, okay, Ed, okay, let's go, let's go, let's move through this, you know, because Mm. that was, like you said, his, his big claim to fame and now he's this, this scary monster dude that did this stuff but even the cops that were listening to it were like just would he just shut up already you know like yeah not yeah. because it was so gross the,
0: the trip home but it was when they brought him back from pueblo there's exactly four people from law enforcement or three people from law enforcement and that brought him home and yeah they were like We needed him to keep talking, but at the same time, oh, my gosh, please shut up. (laughs) And, you know. those
1: hours of just him droning on about. And he did. And he was, you know, he definitely had details about things. But, of course, you know, from his own perspective. And one of the reasons why that stood out to me about him just being annoying. And then so when I picked that up in your book was when the cops would say, man, he just... He was annoying. He used to talk and talk and talk about it. He'd walk in, start talking about himself, you know, and uh-huh. he'd just go droning on and on and on and about his problems and about this and about that. And, and sometimes it was like, all right, we got to go. You know, like it was that kind of thing. And the reason why I was looking for that kind of thing is because of the story. Again, it's one of these things that you hear over and over and over in every account when he's talking about when he killed his mother, because he says that was that night. It was late and I came home or she came home or whatever. And I went to her room or the doorway of her room. And she said, oh, I guess you're going to want to talk all night now. Now that to me rang completely 100% true. That she would say that to him. And I thought, because you're so frigging annoying. Like, she was probably like, oh, God, I'm tired. I'm half drunk. Leave me alone. I just came from a party. And you're going to come in here and drone on about some bullshit that I know is bullshit. And it's like, can we just go to sleep, you know? But the other thing that I picked up from that statement that he made about his mother is that she would listen to him she would be there uh-huh. she you know and Marley. sometimes she told him to shut the hell up but you know who who wouldn't you know it's like
3: right, right,
1: right. you got this gigantic <laughs> guy living in your tiny do du- is the other thing that's a tiny duplex they lived in
3: it was right, not right, a right,
1: big yeah. place people think oh he had this yeah. huge backyard where he buried bodies and heads no it's a, that's that was my question is how did he do all this in this little tiny place because i know how small those places are right there's not much yeah, art I mean, to them or anything
0: so, yeah, so, he's no, I mean, you know, the sort of willful negligence, I think people just didn't pay attention. I mean, he talked about dismembering bodies in the trunk of his car, looking up. It's a crowded neighborhood, too. I'm not sure exactly how many houses were there back then. But if you go there now, it's a not a
1: big street, neighborhood. right?
0: Yeah, no, not at all. And it's like a U. So it's really compacted with houses or so. He talked about, yeah, you, know, you know, cutting up bodies in his trunk and looking up and pe- seeing people in their windows and there they are looking out and just a different sort of era, you know, where people just were, were not vigilant in that kind of way. It was yeah. mind your own business. You you always hear about the, um, what was the one in New York, Kitty. Uh, oh, Kitty Genovese. Yeah.
1: Kitty Genovese, yeah.
0: Kitty right. Genovese. Yeah, Kitty Genovese, yeah. You always hear about that story. I remember that growing up. And I think that that was just... sort of the different attitude that's just the attitude
1: or if you if you
0: in a lot of ways
1: if you go with my theory it's like they're like oh god Kemper's outside ain't going out there that guy just never shuts up
0: (laughs) you're (laughs) gonna get so much hate mail that's great
3: (laughs) no
1: bring it man because i'm telling you this guy is (laughs) if i go
0: out there he's not gonna stop talking
3: yeah (laughs)
1: exactly so i mean they probably avoided him like the plague so you know (laughs) and he was just an annoying dude and even in those interviews even when you watch those youtube you can only watch so much of them not because of the details so much the details are disgusting you know and of course that could totally turn mm-hmm. you off but to me it's something he just i mean he talks about what he was wearing and this color socks and i mean just minutiae that nobody cares about you know what i mean like that's funny. and yeah. it's like dude just get to the you know, get to the bullet points here. Let's just move this along. And so, so that was one of the things I totally picked up about him is that he was annoying. His mother put up with a (laughs) lot of shit. She lived with this guy, you know, and like you said, so this is the thing that I also learned from your book is that he went to, you know, California Youth Authority at first when he killed his, his grandparents because he was a minor and that's where they put them. But then they said, okay, this guy has some special needs, so he went to Tascadoro, which is the, the psychiatric kind of you know prison facility, right? Yeah. And yeah. so that's where he was, you know, kind of uh, treated. And then they're the ones that you know, the psychiatrists there said, "Don't put him with his mother. Like that's a bad. It's it's like yeah. you know, oil and water. It's just like you know, putting uh, fanning the fire of this guy's problems."
3: Yeah.
1: But then it looks like what they do, it, and this happens a lot of times with you know in the prison system, is they transfer him back to CYA before his release. And then CYA right. basically said nothing. Like, okay, your mother they needs to come get you.
0: Said worse than that, they said we're going to remand you to the custody of your mother. Yeah, because you she's your mom. It's your mother, right? Yeah.
1: And who else do you have? That's all you have. Because your dad's not going to come. Oh, yeah. he's
0: dead. Which I found her. I thought was sort of weird because the kid, he's twenty-one at this point, you know, and like Harold Cartwright, who was the investigator for the public defender's office, and you know, it was very intimate, it, it, and he pointed out they they didn't have a choice he turned 21 he's out of the system he is going home and so but i thought it was interesting that he, they would say you have to live with your mother i mean he's he's older so
1: yeah that that's that's a question but, i had you know. too and this goes to the next kind of talking point that i feel like we need to like refute a little bit in some ways mm-hmm. is the fact that you always hear about how he was this genius How he had Uh this super high IQ and he was this genius and this and that. And yet, one thing we know about his, his, well, I know now from your book that he did not do well in school. He was, and not because he couldn't, because he seemed like he was intelligent, but Uh he would never make an effort. He didn't like to put effort into anything. Like he.
0: Yeah, he, yeah, that's true.
1: To me, it was like, okay, if he was so smart and, they, you know, and the thing is too, the IQ, I don't think was tested until he was at a Tascadero. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's the first time I found it and and they tested him several times. And I think the numbers, the first one was 131. And, and I actually, I think it's in the index, but I reproduced, you know, that, that finding is in the book right there. That's, I I didn't draw that. So uh, it was 131 at one point, And I think it went up to 140 something before he got out when he was a little older so but I mean, you hear very, you well hear read. things
1: like i i read things from like 165 to you know yeah. and i'm like where do they get this like
0: yeah i i think i and honestly it feels like it goes up 10 points every 10 years so like <laughs> so I, I actually heard somebody say it was 180 something oh my I'm gosh like, whoa that it just keeps going up doesn't it <laughs> and i think he was very he was smart very smart i think the law enforcement sort of you know gave that to him and uh with his uh, recollection his very specific recollection of what people were wearing, what his victims are wearing, what was going on. You know, he just re- has an amazingly sharp memory. Is, does that equate to IQ? I don't know. I, I, you know, in yeah, some but way maybe, but.
1: That's the uh, thing though about serial yeah. killers. I mean, especially you know this about Canberra for sure. And for like the, the serious is they fantasize about what they're going to do for, a long time before they start putting it into action, right? Like you said, he did all of the trial, picking up the hitchhikers and all this. And the whole time he's thinking about what he's gonna do and how he would do it and how he would get away with it and all this stuff. And so that goes to that whole eidetic memory thing because it's like you are fantasizing about this so long that when it actually happens, it's like you're seeing it in cinematic color. Like this is like everything I ever wanted. And I'm a, and even if they're not exactly correct, in his mind, that's what happened because this is his fantasy. And so yeah. that is, you know, of course, that's not his game. And he's going to want to. That was the thing I think for the serials, the hardest thing is not being able to talk about it because some of them. I would, would
0: imagine for somebody like that, especially. Dan, right.
1: Yeah. For him, who's so, yeah. you know, very, very verbal. is And the other ones, of course, want to keep it as this is mine. I own now I own my victims. Mm. And so I'm not sharing that information with anybody where others like him, because he's got this tendency, he wants to be this big person. He wants to be this, you know, respected person that people are afraid of or revere, whatever that he is going to like really get into detail and tell you. And this is how he did it. And the other thing I I got in his uh, interviews is he always thinks he's the smartest guy in the room always. He's smarter than yeah, the that, attorneys. Sure. He's for smarter sure. than the psychiatrist. He's smarter than the judge, you know, and he's always talking about how like, oh, nobody ever knew. No, The judge had never come across somebody like me before, you know, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, but not for the reasons yeah. you maybe think.
0: <laughs> like, right, 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 right. <laughs> the other thing is, is he tells a very good story. He, he is a master at, at telling a good story. Another thing I liked about or the why I chose, you know, telling it as quotes is you could you could track that especially with Kemper, where when he's first arrested, he tells a story a certain way, and then later on, once he gets his, you know, his appointed a public defender, and he puts in that insanity plea. Oh, suddenly the crimes are much much worse, and then later when he's up for parole in 2017, oh well, I was never accountable. I never. Had, human flesh or whatever he said you know so the story changes over time depending on his circumstances who he's talking to what he has to gain what he has to lose all of that and he's so good at telling stories that each one is very believable if you took one of those and said oh yeah that's the hard facts And that's another reason why I couldn't write the book straight and say, I'm Emerson Murray. And here's what happened. You, nobody knows. He's alone at night with these victims or these people that are already dead, these corpses and doing what he's doing. Nobody in the world knows. So all we have, I mean, there's some, you know, CSI that can show some things, but all we have is his stories. And so as those stories change, for me, it's extremely interesting to see, how they change? Why they change? Who's he's around? Like I said before, yeah. So,
1: yeah, I, I, that was a genius, but part,
0: maybe, but yeah. but but a, a great storyteller for sure.
1: Yeah, for sure. Know? I mean, he was very well thought out and planned. That's for sure, you know. Um, but like again, I said, like I said, it was because that is something he'd been fantasizing about for years you know so he said mm-hmm. since he mm-hmm. was a kid yep. and, and yep. you know and the thing it was funny in your book when i was reading the part where he first talks or at least in the book it first brings up what he's talking about the the cannibalism part of it i've looked at it today, and I, I had written in the margin, this sounds like bullshit. <laughs> like,
3: mm-hmm.
1: like for some reason it's I don't buy enough. it, I don't buy it. Like
3: yeah. some yeah.
1: of it I did, but then the, when he goes into the whole scenario of doing all this stuff, I thought, now now he's thought it through, rehearsed it, made it this great story. Like you said, you know, turned it into this yeah. story. That's really like, wow, that's going to give an impact when I tell the story this way and in the genius thing, it's like he was working at gas stations, you know? His mother worked yeah. at UC Santa Cruz. He probably went, could have went to school for free. He didn't take college classes, or he didn't, you know, get a degree. He, you know, he talks about how great he did at a Atascadero, but he did nothing really beyond that. You know, I think he had some kind of training for something. I can't remember what it was. Um, but he was working in very entry-level jobs. Again, I think that all goes, he might have been a very smart person, but he had no self-esteem. He was always measuring himself yeah. against everybody else. And rather than putting any effort, like we saw that from early, his mother says he didn't want to do Boy Scouts because it was too much to do, you know, work to do school. Forget it. You know, it's like he didn't want to try. Um, He didn't want to put any effort into any. And she she had a good quote about that. I wish I would have wrote it down. But she's basically said he wanted all of the accolades, basically, without any of the effort, you know, and that. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, and you see that through his life. And the only thing that he put his time and energy into was, you know, becoming this killer. That was it. Yeah. And nothing else in his life worked out. But why? Because he was spending so much time fantasizing about doing this. And not actually doing something of value to, you know, for the world or for himself or or putting any yeah. effort. So, you know, when people say, oh, he was just so smart and he was this and that. And it's like, no, he was a freaking loser. You know, don't you understand? Like, he could have been. <laughs> because even the thing with the judge, it was like, you know, you could have been something you could have done really well. You're an intelligent yep. guy and this and that. and it's like, yeah, you became you decided to take he said something about the two paths. I forget exactly how he put it, but yeah. he said you took the you know, you took the dark road or something like that, which is kind of the same thing that judge said to Bundy when he, you know
0: to hit, Bundy, yeah. yeah, yeah, which
1: is interesting to me, but because that was, of course, later on, I mean, he's not there's this much about this tiny piece about him that's interesting and the rest of it is so mediocre you know his whole oh, life is yeah, so yeah, mediocre yeah. if you think about it
0: i i totally appreciate your perspective because i don't like 100 to- agree with you but i <laughs> love it that it's just it's just different you know because everybody sort of toes the line when it comes to to kemper and it's just refreshing to hear
3: yeah
1: you know i guess because effect. you know i've I researched so many cases and i just see certain patterns in these kind of individuals that do these these crimes. And if you really look beneath the surface, there's not a whole lot to them. You know, there's not, Uh and, and not that there couldn't be, it's just that they decided that, yeah, not, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm living, I'm living this, I'm doing this because this is the only thing I really care about or, you know, for whatever reason, but it's just, yeah, it's really kind of sickening that they become these like, I don't know, celebrities or something like that. Um, of course, yeah. we're talking yeah. about them. So of course, it's not like I'm not contributing to I <laughs> will own that. Yeah.
0: I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a true crime podcast. I mean, it's funny because when I've done other radio interviews and stuff, I don't, we don't, Talk about the killer. I i stress how much the book is about the victims and right. and uh, getting in touch with them and the impact on Santa Cruz. But this, you know, it's a different.
1: But I think you can show. if you talk so about good. if you really talk about them honestly. Stop looking at the celebrity kind of aspect of it, which a lot of people want to sensationalize because you know people. I don't know. They they buy it. it it's packaged very nicely on you know these these half an hour shows on television or something. But it's not the truth. Right. The other thing I did not know, I don't think I ever knew, was the fact that he was actually had a girlfriend, was engaged during some of this. Yeah,
0: he had a fiance, which just totally doesn't fit in a lot of ways. But when you start to break it apart, it it does in a lot of ways. You know, she was like a sophomore in high school. Oh, gosh. And yeah, and he would go visit her family and uh, he would have to sleep in uh, her little brother's room. (laughs) so she's sleeping with like the six-year-old little brother in a tiny bed 15 year old i could just see him fiancé yeah it was next door well and her parents couldn't stand up they thought he was i think they said uncouth or something yeah i
1: actually put that because i said see this this is somebody who knew him and it goes to my theory uh, it was the father, Richard, was it Verbrugge, is that how you say it?
0: D- uh, Dick Verbrugge was an Verbrugge. investigator, yeah. Okay. And, oh, okay. And he had, interv- he had interviewed the
3: father, yeah. Yeah,
1: he said, when asked what he felt about Kemper in general, Kemper's fiancé's stepfather stated that Kemper showed a gross lack of training in every respect, making reference to his table manners, politeness, and lack of consideration for other people.
0: I mean, he's dating this woman while he's killing, while he's on his I did spring. not know that. Uh, yeah and it's a Valentine's Day and he spends the night and he uh is joking around with the son so much and so, he's so loud and obnoxious that they kicked him out of the house <laughs> and he spent the night in his car in his car <laughs> and where he said that in the morning he he drove his fiance to school cuz she's still going to high school oh god how old yeah, was but, he at the, at the, the, the time that was like was, one of the last times that they saw what, like, 22 they saw or
1: 23 at the time how old was he then
0: yeah he's like yeah exactly he's like 22 Oh, gosh. maybe 23 yeah uh, i think closer to 22 but yeah and they said you know the relationship wasn't affectionate they didn't kiss a lot they never consummated anything and i don't want to say that it was a cover or anything like that because i think he did have feelings for her but i think he also had sort of a you know maybe a desire to be normal or something like i'm going to give this a shot or try this or something it,
3: yeah because it doesn't like regular, fit
0: in with everything else
1: no it just seemed like a regular dating relationship
0: when we Heard stories, about you never heard about that at all. It wasn't only until more recently, I think, that people sort of realized that. I don't know if he said something or if it, somebody had discovered it somehow.
1: And the other thing, um, too, is he did not live with his mother the whole time. He actually had his own place in Alameda, right? I mean, he had his.
0: Yeah, yeah. Where... And that, that's like his first few killings. Uh, he was living over there, the first few murders.
1: Because, you know, you always hear about how he went to his mother's house after he got out of, you know, Tescadero. And he was living with mm. her, but he actually ended up getting a job, like there was a the highway department or something like that, mm. and he had an apartment up in the um alameda Oakland like a, yeah area. yeah
0: by Oakland, it's right by Oakland
1: right, so you know, so he was living up there, had his own place in that, and then he got in that uh was it a motorcycle accident or something
0: well yeah, or he was the, I think he was in the motorcycle accident uh oh, so. first is that how he afford no, that's how he bought his car. Yeah. And then he had to move home. You're right. I'm getting the, I'm getting the time. Yeah. I was, I was, yeah then he I had, had to move things. home after that. Yeah.
1: Right. So, he, okay. So he gets hurt. He hurts his arm. Um, or Can't work. Can't work. And so he goes home to mom, but he had money to buy a car. You know what I mean? Yeah. He,
0: that's, that was his insurance settlement was to buy a car. Yeah.
1: So what when and, he go home, uh, to, I mean, maybe she had to help him because, you know, he's had, in an accident or whatever but i mean how long did he have to be there he didn't have to be there that long, <laughs> i don't think you know right, what i mean right, right. he wasn't completely disabled you know in so that yeah. that's also telling like you, this is the person you supposedly hate can't stand to be around or whatever but you keep why because she's the person that was there actually there for you you know
0: yeah that goes to what you were saying earlier she's the one that's stuck by you yeah we all sort of have that, right? We all sort of put on a different face and, and you can be normal around your yeah. your family and the people closest to you. And unfortunately, you know, if you're not uh, doing well or mentally altogether or you're drinking like they were, yeah. he and his, his mother drank a tremendous amount Yes, that you end up treating them so poorly. And it's just such a loaded relationship between the two of them. The sisters talk about that, you know, how tough their mom was to to deal with and and all that for yeah. sure no she and, definitely
1: had a temper she definitely like you said had a um you know she had a mouth on her that she would she would yeah. say these things to him and they and i guess i i'm bringing that up only because again what you hear 99 percent of the time is uh, how terrible clarnell was but yet you don't you know two-pronged there one is that you don't hear about what she did like you said she went every other week to go see him when he was all these kinds of things so she was there um, like you said, not a perfect mother by by a long shot, but definitely was there for him. And also you never hear really that the dad did a lot of damage to him, you know, and was yeah. probably a big part of his problems of why he had so much hate in him and why he did the things he did. But think about this. He always targeted the females who he hated. He says so he right. hated women. And this is why he chose them as victims again, going to the most vulnerable victims, you know, because he had really no self-esteem and, and didn't really feel competent in any way, even though he was like this big, supposedly super scary, smart guy, but he would, he would target the females. And, uh, and he had a certain type that he was looking for as well. They were smaller, they were slightly built, belt, all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So you really got to look at that and say, you know, there was multiple reasons, again, like we were talking earlier, there's multiple reasons that kind of feed into what he did. And it, you can't just point a finger at his mother as this terrible person that created this monster is is all i'm saying yeah
0: for sure yeah i completely agree with that
1: i remember hearing a couple of the interviews where he says when we were were drinking we would fight you know, so it yeah. wasn't just her like they were both like you said drinking a lot and i don't think that that could it would
0: escalate people. he said you know they'd they, be the stupidest little thing about whether he should go to the dentist or something like that was the example that he gave but Uh, It's just these small things that would just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and, 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 you know, explode. And even the neighbors commented, Oh, they used to fight a lot. Even the fiance, when I wrote her a letter and she responded, she said, Oh yeah, they used to fight a lot. So I mean, it's just...
1: Yeah, it was it was, a bad, it was a bad dynamic and they shouldn't have been... That's kind of like one of the final things that I, I got from the book, too, is, is reading his words. I mean, he obviously is very self-aware of some of his own motivations, some of his own hang-ups and things of why he was doing what he was doing, his own anger. But when it got to that question or that part of the story that he's telling, he was going to always make it because this person did this, is why I did this, even with the victims.
3: Oh, funny. Even with the yeah. victims,
1: like he would say, She said this thing. And that really set me off. Even though he had just finished saying that he had planned it and he had picked this person out, and this tonight was going to be, you know, I was going to find this person and, and do this thing. And if they yeah. got into the car this way and all of this stuff. But then he has to, in his mind, find a reason, one thing that they did, or he just takes it. Well, you know, my mom made me mad that night. So that's why I went out. And then this, you know, this victim said this thing or looked this way. And he always perceives that everybody's looking down on him, that everybody thinks they're Mm -hmm. better than him. And so he brings that up multiple times. Like, oh, you know, these college, and that was the thing, the college girls, they were going to college and they thought they were all this, it was the first, uh, the first girl that you, and I didn't know a lot about her background, but apparently she had uh, come from a wealthier family. And had uh I forget what what it is that she was involved with, but it was something you had to have money for
3: skiing, yeah.
0: Or skiing, skiing. skiing and, yeah. And she would travel around the world and had pen pals in different
1: countries. Yeah. And, and not that he would pen know pen that pen picking up a hitchhiker, but you know, he may have got her to talk to him. He knew she, it
0: after the fact, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And
1: then he brings that in as, oh, see, because you know, and, and that was the thing. The whole overall motivation is and this I think he, like you said, came out later, you know, after he was he was arrested and everything, is where he talks about. That he was striking back at the people in society who would be most like missed kind of, or it would be felt, their impact would be felt because they would have contributed to the world, basically. You know, they had an education and they were talented and they were this and they were that. And this is what I'm like, how would he know that picking up these, they're hitchhikers. He didn't know this.
0: Yeah. And also, um, it just doesn't sound like anything else you know about him. He, he wasn't that kind of aggro, angry killer. He killed him in the nicest, quickest possible way. If you're going to kill someone, maybe I mean that sounds disturbing for me to say that, but <laughs> everything no, even... he did was it was after they had died. You know, yeah. anything horrible he had done is after they had died for the most part. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Aiko Kuwa. That was yeah. a horrible, horrible death. But for the most part, you know, he shot him, and it's just that line, that motivation. I just. I just never really bought it it just no he didn't come across as that aggressive or angry or he just didn't i mean ultimately i i think that you know the prosecution had it right and he was a sex killer yeah i mean
3: that
0: nobody wants to hear that that it's that simple you know he's learned about rape in a Tascadero and he just knows that he has to kill him, so that they don't turn him in. And, and that was very common at that time. And I talked to Chris Cottle, who was the assistant district attorney under Peter Chang and later became district attorney. And then uh, and then he became a judge. Uh, Chris said that he had tried so many rapes of women hitchhiking. And during that time period, And when it started, when it really started picking up and happening uh, that he could not get a jury to take it seriously, the attitude was, oh, she's out hitchhiking, oh, she asked for it, that kind of thing. And it took years before they were starting to get juries in that had some kind of freaking rational thought about the whole thing, like, no, what are you, why are you victim blaming or victim shaming? Like, give me a break. And, And it just took years and years.
1: And it seemed like that came out way later too, when he's, he's coming up with this theory about why, you know, he picked these people. And I said, no, he picked them because they were female and they were, you know, seemed like easy prey. And this is was his fantasy. Because he even says that in, in a couple of his interviews where he says that uh, he never had a normal sexual relationship with anybody. It was, you know, he never really. He said he
0: had never had, yeah, he never had, uh, I won't get into the nitty gritty of it, but yeah, he never had normal sexual relations with anybody that was alive.
1: That was alive. Exactly. That's what he said. Because that wasn't his fantasy. And I think that that came about very early on. I don't know if that was when he was young. Like we said, there could be something that he saw or learned about or heard about. And, you know, that just became a fixation of mine. It might've been when he was locked up the first time when he was still young and he heard about these rape stories. I'm sure that fed that, you know, that whole idea of that yeah. of, of that and then later on, I think there was a part wasn't he talking to Mullen a lot or something
0: oh yeah that it was a quote from Herbert Mullen because I, I asked him if they ever you know ran into each other other than that state in Redwood City and, and Mullen was housed in Vacaville for a time mm-hmm. and and they did talk a few times and I can't remember the exact quote either, but Mullen says, yeah, I was interested in science and he was interested in true crime. And once that was established, we didn't have much to talk about.
1: Yeah. You know what? You know what I pictured?
0: Mullen's never- still interested in science. I got to tell you, he's always asking me to send articles about the, the wolves that have traveled across States and things like that. <laughs> oh, really? it's, he's just really interested in that stuff.
1: You know what that reminded me when, yeah. when he said, yeah, all they want to do is talk about this, you know, crime and stuff. You know, that, uh, that movie Sling Blade, With the the Bob. Remember at the beginning where there's that sicko guy because he's in that, you know, that psychiatric uh, prison facility, right? Because he had killed his mom or some guy or whatever. And that guy's sitting there just talking about, like, his
3: disgusting,
1: you know, molesting kids and killing people or whatever. And he's just... (laughs) <laughs> and he's just trying to keep away from this guy because he's so you know annoying and disgusting and he doesn't want to hear it even though yeah. he's a murderer he doesn't want to hear that you know and that's what i yeah, pictured yeah, yeah. in my mind as kipper
0: trying to scurry away and kipper's walking after him talking about true crime
1: yeah <laughs> and i keep picturing him as that guy that creepy guy in that scene i was like that's oh funny. my god that's crazy but yeah so i just want to bring it back around to just you know just to say that there's a lot more in the book, you guys. It's not just, you know, Kemper, of course, you've got the two other, you know, and these were major, you know, major crimes. Again, what's really unique about the book, um, again, it's called Murder Capital of the World. It tells all three stories, but also in context of the time and the place. And you really get a, a sense of that because it's not like here's a Mullen chapter, here's a Kemper chapter, here's a Frazier chapter. It's kind of like there is that when you're talking about what's going on with those cases at the time, but it's also there's they're in the same place where they got arrested or they're at Vacaville together and this is happening. Yeah. Or maybe Kemper said something about Mullen. Well, I think he said something about they used to have conversations, of course, because it was happening at the time with his, you know, his mother, his sisters whatever be talking about these crimes so, or even yeah. the girls that were missing that, of course, Kemper was. Yeah. So that was super creepy, you know, to, to read the words that his sister said. This is, I asked, did you hear about this and that? What he would say about it, you know, to them. Yeah,
0: yeah. She even asked him. That wasn't you, was it?
1: Yeah, the Cindy Shaw. I mean,
0: she confronted him the one time. That blew, yeah. blew my mind.
1: Yeah, because yeah, they know. said she suspected that something about the Cindy Shaw one. She goes, she turned to her husband as a drunk. She goes, Do you don't think that was Andy like I mean who would yeah, think that way on the
0: coast yeah. They were, right, yeah driving by past Devil's slide down the coast yeah and I can just imagine them you know the ocean and they're coming into Santa Cruz mm-hmm. at night and she's just racking her brain at sister because she was thinking back to those cats that he had killed
1: yeah and the things and that and he used to say and
0: Cynthia and, and the things yeah, he used to yeah, do when he
1: was a kid and just yeah I mean I mean who They would...
0: went to the the mom's house and and he was living there at the time and the husband went and talked to the to clarnell and and she and kemper was in bed watching his little tv and she was standing in the doorway and just asked him you know was that you and and he said how he said something like how could you even say that because mom asked me the same question <laughs> and it's, it's like his family it just they just had this like oh maybe like they it had crossed their mind without yeah. a doubt
1: well so, i mean it's not like he has hadn't murdered before so
0: well that's the thing too yeah it's You know, he had done it before, so it has to cross your mind. I mean, the killings were very different, but it just has to cross your mind. And it's UCSC students and the moms working up there. And yeah, it's so close. I mean, yeah, Yeah, I tried to find other times, like, were they ever in the same place or anything? And the closest I got was his sister worked at the drug abuse prevention center. Uh, In Santa Cruz. And it, it was sort of a very well known sort of drug rehabilitation place. And it went through all sorts of drama itself. But she worked there. And she in the interview, the tape that I have, she actually remembers Herbert Mullen staying there. because he did and and i I, I found those documents and you know he was like snoring and not paying attention to group and i think the notes say like mullen failed group or something something kind (laughs) of extreme and he did not stay very long but she remembered him and i thought wow that's that's sort of amazing that was one of the few big surprises for me where things linked up
1: Thanks so much. The discussion was just as fun as I thought it was going to be. I mean, there was so much I learned from the book. And I still have to go back through the Mullen and the Frasier stories because, again, I don't know as much about those. I know a little bit. Like I said, you guys, you are not going to get a better reference if you are all interested in any of these or serial killers in general, because there's so much in there that really is going to make you. you think about just the whole idea of this, you know, who these killers are and what they're about and how you know, even investigations, you know, come about and the backgrounds of these people and stuff. There's so much in there. One the last thing I was going to say is that most of the things that we do know about Kemper come, most of it from John Douglas and the FBI, you know, it, it's yeah. that narrative. And so this gives you so much more than that, you know, as much as they, got information that they got, and of course that was very instrumental in, you know, creating this whole, you know, the way that they identify and catch serial killers. But, there's so much more to it. Guys, just the pictures and the documents and stuff in here alone. It's like, that will just keep keep you going for a while. But uh, yeah, really, really well done. So, um, and I appreciate you letting uh, my audience know about that because I know they're going to be really interested in it. So how can they find the book? How can they get it?
0: Oh, yeah. So murdercapitaloftheworld.com. You can order it directly from me. My kids help me package them up and we'll get it out to you within a day or two. And if you're in the Santa Cruz area, you can also get it from Bookshop Santa Cruz or Two Birds Books and uh, the Postal in Scotts Valley. I don't, you have like an international audience. I'm used to doing local radio, sorry. <laughs> I'll tell you, the Postal Annex. it's right down the street now. Um, so yeah, uh, but MurderCapitalOfTheWorld.com and then there's a kindle book i learned how to make kindles uh, uh, kindle i don't know if i'm saying that right <laughs> I'm the old man uh, i learned how to make kindles, the kindles. Um, <laughs> uh, i learned how to do the kindle formatting or i don't know how you say it and so there's a kindle available on amazon but i sort of I, I created that because the international shipping prices are so outrageous especially for a f- huge book like this it's like so heavy but it's only got like 25 pictures in it versus you know 300 plus in the paperback so I, I strongly encourage people to get it. I, I printed a thousand of them. They're all signed and numbered and I'm down to about 300 left. Oh, wow. I'm going to pull, you know, 50 to hundred because I go and do some speaking events and I, I need books for that. And I don't know if I'll do a second printing or what, but, but we'll figure it out. Yeah. And so uh, you guys yeah, that- Murder Capital of the World. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Murdercapitaloftheworld.com. Uh, Check it out. Yeah, get it soon because it's going to be out and he's going to have to do a reprinting and who knows how long that's going to take, (laughs) right?
0: Yeah, thank you, Esther. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. I want to thank my guest, Emerson Murray, once again for being on the show. To find out more about him and his phenomenal book, The Murder Capital of the World, go to MurderCapitalOfTheWorld.com. We're giving away two copies to listeners. All you have to do to get in on the drawing is sign up to receive texts from Once Upon a Crime. Opt in by texting OUAC to 408-676-1770. That's the letters OUAC to 408-676-1770. Text messaging is provided by textsanity.com. We'll randomly draw two listeners to receive a copy of Murder Capital of the World on December 23rd. So make sure to opt in by December 22nd. This offer is only good for U.S. listeners. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Final audio edit for this episode was by Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another.